Welcome to Black to Nature, the podcast, a monthly discussion of all things related to the intersection of nature and blackness. I'm Professor Stephanie Dunning, and I'll be your host. Today, we're going to be talking about camping while black. Before I begin this episode, I would like to do a land acknowledgement to bear witness to and honor the indigenous people to whom this land that is called America by many belongs. I want to acknowledge that when we gather anywhere in the Americas on the traditional land of diverse and myriad indigenous peoples, both past and present, we must honor with gratitude the land itself and the people who have stewarded it throughout the generations. This calls us to commit to continuing to learn how to be better stewards of whatever lands we inhabit, as well as, for me, working towards a future where indigenous stewardship of this beautiful place can be restored. This episode is on one level about camping while black, but on another, it's about the experience of sleeping and living outside, if only for a short time. When I am in the woods at night, listening to the call of owls and the quiet creeping of the nighttime creatures, I'm also thinking about Harriet Tubman. I'm thinking about what she had to know in order to free herself and many others from slavery. What skill set was required for her to walk off the plantation with almost nothing and hike 90 miles through the forest to anti-slavery territory? I am thinking about that journey, not just the before and after, because between slavery and freedom, there were trees, plants, the stars pointing the way, animals to be avoided, fish to be caught so people could eat, things to be foraged so people could eat, and bird calls to be developed so that the people escaping tyranny could communicate safely with one another. Thus, the call of the owl, the song of the owl, marks a place in memory for me of freedom because Harriet Tubman, a master naturalist, used these same calls you just heard to communicate with those she was liberating. Consider both the poetry and power of this, that the sounds of animals become a portal to freedom. The night sounds, which so many of us have been conditioned to fear, were flipped by Tubman's insightful and courageous method for liberating the enslaved. The ability to sleep outside and move through the forest without fear reattunes us as beings, grounding us because the earth, without walls or the illusory sense of separation they create, is our true home. You know, as a teacher, I always felt that children need that because they need to be sort of out there and know that they can make it. I'm talking to my friend Allison Jones. 
We met at Spelman College in the 1990s when we were both students there. Allison lives in Detroit and is a teacher and an avid naturalist. She and I have camped together a lot over the past few years. I ask Allison about her earliest memories of camping and how she grew to love sleeping outdoors. What was, what was the, was it kind of like a YMCA, like a sleepaway camp? Yes. So um, I started going to the camps, the YMCA camps that were um, one and two weeks. My sister and I would go to those and we'd take school friends, you know, with us and take the bus there and um, and come back, give our parents a break. Um, When my parents were traveling, they would send us to... um, still in Michigan, but uh, two different camps. But I went to Minnewanka, which was like five weeks um, away, um, full of adventure, an infirmary (laughs) even. (laughs) And you write notes like, you know, someone come get me, and they just send you a care package (laughs) because no one's coming. I'm loving this conversation where the childhood desire to escape camp and return to the predictability of home is ignored by wise parents who know that the skills of being out in the natural world will serve Allison and her sister in good stead. This connects for me to Tubman's naturalist expertise. Allison's parents knew that not picking her up when she sent the note meant that she would learn how to be strong and free. It may seem, at first glance, ridiculous to equate summer camp with freedom, but natural literacy is deeply connected, I argue in my work, to both feelings of freedom and the actual ability to step away from a society that has historically, for many folks, been oppressive. Camping, for me then, and the natural literacy it inculcates, is intimately tied to black history through not only figures like Harriet Tubman, but also through the experience of marinage throughout the African diaspora. We can see the ability to step into the forest and off the Western grid as a key component of black resistance to oppression. It even shows up in some West African texts, when, for instance, in the work of Malidoma Patrice Somme, he talks about how he left the oppressive French mission school in his home of Burkina Faso and walked many miles all the way back to his village. He survived because he figured out how to live in the forest for the days it took him to arrive home. He survived for the same reason that Tubman did. Because they had a natural literacy, which made walking away from the French mission school, and in Tubman's case, the plantation, possible. What would it mean to see natural literacy as an essential component of our education on how to be free? (laughs) wow wow okay so so actually even though it was like as a child you you perhaps felt bittersweet about it um as you got older obviously you started to somehow reconnect with that natural experience and bring it into your life now definitely um going going camping is a way to just kind of cool out, just the ultimate, you know, um, relaxation. Mm-hmm. And also, it's probably my personality where I can control the environment. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's funny you should say that because I think a lot of people don't like camping precisely because they feel like they're not in control of the environment, you know? But mm-hmm. if you're afraid of bugs, 
or like if you have certain kinds of fears then you feel out of control of the environment but if you don't have those fears then camping is like a disconnection right from like the computer the phone cars noise you know lights like mm -hmm. you know all of that is removed but i think a lot of people feel like oh i don't want to go camping because you know what's going to happen to me out there in the wilderness as i sort of covered in the first episode one of the things i don't want to do in my work is ignore the very real history and to some extent the present danger black people face in isolated places news stories like one reported in june of this year illuminate why so many black people see camping as a dangerous activity a family was camping in Oregon when some local people armed with semi-automatic shotguns accused the family of being Antifa operatives, and they cut down trees to prohibit them from leaving the forest where they were camping. Some local high school students came with chainsaws and cleared the road, and the police arrived and escorted the family to safety. But incidents such as these continue to taint the water for black folks who might be considering giving camping a try. So here's a question. Have you ever had any bad experiences camping? Like with, like re related to racism or anything like that? Um, no, there was one, per one interesting time. Um, Ken and I were camping at Wilderness, not in the rustic places. So now we camp in the rustic places. Ken is Allison's husband. Where you have to walk your equipment to your location and yeah. you're, you know, looking at the lake. Yeah. So we were with the people and um, we were uh, in a tent where I think others around us were in a tent, but there were also some RVs. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a family from Florida mm -hmm. and they would get into these really interesting fights and different things. And we would, you know, not worry for our own safety, but really, what were we going to see? We were worried about that. Yeah. Um, but and and I think that in in that experience, they one family member thought that something was missing from their camp, um, but quickly another family member said, "You know, there's a rule to camping: you don't touch anybody's stuff." And clearly um, we were camping in a small tent next to a big Lincoln. So it wasn't like we were gonna take anything from them, but right. it did feel like there was a little accusation there okay. that um, if it was missing, then maybe we took it. Oh, wow. It is difficult to communicate the pain of being thought to have done something wrong that you did not do. It is even more difficult to explain what it's like to live, thrive and experience joy under the anti-Black assumptions which frame our society. Writing about environmentalism in African-American culture, Carolyn Finney notes that for many African-Americans, quote, the ability to name, frame, and claim a green space is partly grounded in collective and individual memories that inform how they navigate and understand such spaces, end quote. What I want to do in this podcast is to create an honest archive, a kind of collective memory of both the joys and the dangers of Black engagement with natural spaces. 
Okay. Yeah, I mean, I we haven't really had any bad camping experiences directly at us either, but there was one time that we were at a, one of the best campsites. Like when I do when I, I maybe this time I on this time I will I will do a a, a Black to Nature camp book rating for this campsite. It's it's called Top of the Caves and it's in Hocking County in Ohio at Hocking Hills. Is that Hocking Hills? Hocking Hills, yes. That's you on a wish list. You and Ken need to come and we go to Hocking Hills. It's beautiful. And it's a wonderful campsite. Like people were playing drums, you know, there was like Obama stickers, you know what I mean? Like the whole vibe was just, we were like, yes. But there was mm -hmm. one family there and they were they were saying all kinds of horrible things um, to themselves, but we could overhear it. Yeah. And, and they had a couple of children with them and one of the children actually tried to escape. Like he was like three and <laughs> he actually just left their campsite and he was walking around, you know, to all the different places where like the happy people were. <laughs> and he was like, he just was like, people were like, are you lost? He was like, nope, I'm not lost. He was like, he would just come sit down and <laughs> circle by your campfire. And, and, and finally it was like, someone was walking around with him like, does this child belong to your group? Does this child belong to your group? Like he just really did not want to go, you know, his name was Bryce, I remember this. He really did not want to go back to, <laughs> The community of of drunken, cursing, you know, um, folks who were dropping all kinds of problematic language. Um, but that's as close as we've ever come to like a really bad experience when we've been um, camping. Although I've seen some things in the news, but I just feel like when people go camping, they really are trying to disconnect for the most part. They really are trying to like interrupt something about their day to day life, and so there just doesn't seem to be as much like energy like weird energy when you go camping as you might find um, in some other in some other settings. I was not always so comfortable with the idea of being in semi-isolated natural spaces. Years ago, a trip to Gatlinburg, Tennessee was suggested to me by my ex-partner. He was looking for things to do with his mother who was visiting from South Asia. Even though I loved hiking and had even taken a hiking class in graduate school, yes, a hiking class, it was California, what can I say? The thought of hiking down south, even though I'm from the south, filled me with fear. But I went along for the trip despite my trepidations. I ended up having a wonderful time and feeling a connection to the place I did not anticipate. I was enraptured. I was so deeply moved by the energy of the place I returned the next month with my brother. We stayed out of the main drag where all the tourists congregated and instead spent the entire time hiking and being outside. We even took all of our meals under the trees. It was a turning point for me in my own history of being in nature. It shifted the dynamics of my fear and made me feel that I was at least as safe in nature as I was standing on a street corner in Cincinnati. I remember taking off my shoes and wading in a creek. It was such a visceral, powerful, and connected moment that it forever changed me. So, do you feel like, I mean, aside from me, do you have any other friends who go camping? Or is this um, like one of those things, it's like, 
you and Ken's solo hobby and everybody else is like, <laughs> what, what in the world? No way. <laughs> like, are you kidding? Well, I do have um, a teacher friend, um, Anne St. Ange and her family, they go camping a lot um, up north and she sends lots of pictures. Um, let's see, my friend, a Labrador Brazoza, he's from the Philippines. So um, he loves just being like on the beach and, and having his kids um, camping with him for like one and two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've talked about going, you know, to the park where they go. Um, but other than that, um, we are trying to get some, you know, friends from the, from Detroit to maybe experience camping because <laughs> they would like it. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a hard sell, I think. Um, there is, the, there is also kind of the, um, like some of the folks I've talked to about camping who are like, no way, no how, um, there's a comfort factor. And, 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 and this is, this is, this is the part of the interview that I've been most looking forward to with you, my friend, because your gear. Those who know me well know that I am not a materialistic person, like not at all. However, when it comes to camping and outdoor gear, I have a weak spot. Let's just say that there is a ban on visiting REI in our household without an explicit list. But my friend Allison's gear, legendary. I, I remember when we were camping together on um, a mountain or something on Pennsylvania. Right. We went to the, and it rained and we had to leave. Yes. Yeah. But before that, I got to make cookies in the oven. Do you remember that? I do remember the oven. <laughs> I lived in the oven often when my family's rejecting my food. And I, when, I, when we're camping and I'm like, I know Auntie Allison's not here to bake you cookies or whatever. You're just going to have to eat this graham cracker. <laughs> yes, I remember the oven. So have you still been using the oven? Um, not recently. Um, we've taken it a few times because we tailgate for um, football games at times. Mm -hmm. So we um, sometimes take it to make a really good breakfast because we're outside for like eight hours right. and also have to make lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing. It's like you're you're out there camping. You have an oven. If you if you're car camping, you can take an oven. You can take an air mattress. You can take all, everything to make yourself completely comfortable, right? And then, yeah. I guess I should take a moment to introduce you to my dog Ghost, who is barking in the background. He might make some appearances on podcasts in the future. I record these interviews on Zoom because of social distancing and COVID. So sometimes the actual stuff of life shows up in the podcast, like my dog barking in the background. So introducing Ghost. All you have to do is just pop your little pizza in your camp oven. I have yet to graduate to the camp oven. I haven't, I have mm -hmm. not gotten a camp oven yet, but you know what? What we need to do is we, we all need to go back to Canada. We all need to go back to Montreal and we can take camp ovens and you know, we can just do it up. Pizza, biscuits, cookies, all of that good stuff. Yes, we have the coolers to do it too. 
And my guess is that my family will just come over and eat all your food like they always do. <laughs> that brings us so much joy, though. <laughs> it brings you joy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I would never forgive them. I'm like, Marcy, I can bring this mango. And you guys would be like, well, we're not really into fruit. We'd rather have potato chips. But if Auntie Allison brings the mango, <laughs> you're over there eating the mango. Help me, <laughs> Help me understand. Um, the the food is always greener on the other side. Yes. But perhaps the place where gear becomes most important is around the stuff you bring to sleep on. Air mattresses, inflatable sleeping bag inserts, sleeping bags with down feathers. There's a variety of different options for the camper looking for the best night's sleep. And it can be very, it can be very comfortable. Yes. Um, to sleep outside. <laughs> yes. Very, very. No, there are technology, there's technology with like different mattresses um, that slip into a, a sleeping bag or whatever, and it's just dreamland. Yes. You know, well, I, you know, I don't like the little small one that slips inside because all night that thing is going, it's making noise <laughs> all night long. <laughs> so I got to have like the really, like for car camping, I have to have the really big. Uh, uh, inf- like I have to have the full size inflatable thing because the little individual one that I take backpacking, ugh, that thing is so noisy. The cot is way better. It's just go ahead and just eat the two pounds and take the cot. Yeah, yeah. You know. So I had to think. We went camping, you know, for my birthday a couple of weeks ago, but the dog had had like pulled the leash a couple of days before, and I had strained a shoulder uh, muscle from where he had jerked the leash. And it was really hurting. And then I slept outside for two nights in a row. No, Mm -hmm. like it literally healed the whole, I mean, it was probably a combination of time and sleeping outside. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that sleeping outside for a range of reasons is like really healing. Kenneth Wright, a sleep expert at the University of Colorado Boulder, has done studies that show that sleeping outside offers a range of health benefits. He explains that decreasing our exposure to electrical light in the evenings and increasing our exposure to sunlight during the day resets our circadian clock in a way that is beneficial for our overall functioning. Wright's work shows that the technological and modern environment we live in causes fluctuations in melatonin which we all know affects how easily and how well we sleep. Considering that a recent study indicated that mammalian brains, that's us, eat themselves when sleep deprived, and studies that show that around 70% of Americans are sleep deprived, getting a good night's rest is much more important than not being groggy the next morning. In fact, I might even make a grand leap here and say that being well-rested might be central to projects of social justice and political justice in our society. Furthermore, researchers at the University of Michigan have observed that time outside eases PTSD. And there are a range of other health benefits that have been linked to sleeping outside, from a faster metabolism and an improved immune system. I think there's there's a renewed attention around camping in the black community with organizations like Outdoor Afro and there's something called Melanated Campout that was I'm in the in the era of COVID I don't know what's going to happen 
but in Atlanta, this huge camp out, uh, like a camping festival, really, um, that's, you know, specifically catered towards black folks. And so hopefully experiences like that will get people engaging more in these in these activities. The startup for camping can be kind of expensive, but once you kind of get your tent and you get your sleeping bags and you have the gear, it's not the kind of thing you have to replace often. This is true. You can have it for many years and the actual cost of, of camping, um, at least tent camping is very inexpensive for families. And it right now at this point, it's, um, recommended for because because if you're doing like if you're rustic if there's no one around you then you know you're safe to be unmasked and jump in that lake exactly and also here's another here's another place we should go camping this is down south so we would probably need to go in the fall when it's not quite as hot but Sapelo Island you can Mm -hmm. go to Sapelo and you can go to the beach and it's not crowded there are very few people there there's a campground there it's unpolluted and it is a black island. It's an island where like 100% of the residents, okay, I'll say 95% of the residents are black people, are all really one family. They're <laughs> all the band <laughs> family. Um, and, so, um, and so, you know, it's like, if you want to have some kind of camping engagement with the natural world, but you want to do it in a black space, then there's places like Sapelo where that is entirely possible. So, I mean, of course, there are white people camp there, too, um, on occasion. And, of course, there's, you know, you, you might see some white folks at the, at the Reynolds house on the island. But overall, generally speaking, like everyone, the whole structure of, of the society on the island is a, it's a black island. It's, it's black people. It's black run. It's black owned. And so, to me, I, I just see it as a really safe place. Of course, there's also cottages that you can rent if you don't want to sleep in a tent on, on Sapelo <laughs> Island. So, but there are these spaces, I think, where people can have that engagement with nature without being worried about being menaced by the white state. So. Yeah. It, it may feel good being on Sapelo just because where we are in state parks, and this probably may be the same in national parks, um, you just feel like you're the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. When kind of walking around and, and hiking and doing whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. There's a sense of isolation. It's like, oh, I haven't seen an, another single person of color or black person while I've been <laughs> out here. Yeah. So no, it's not that you feel unsafe. You just feel, you know, like it's just you. Right, exactly. Well, definitely one would not feel that way on Sapelo. So that, you know, that, that, that provides that opportunity um, and then plus you get to have this great down South experience. It's like, there's no grocery store in Sapelo. So you got to go to the Piggly Wiggly where <laughs> you get on that ferry. You can't take your car onto Sapelo. So you have to take a ferry, which means probably the camp ovens out um, because you mm-hmm. can carry it. Um, but, you know, you can put all your stuff in a backpack and get a couple bags of groceries and, and go over to Sapelo Island for a couple of days. Beautiful place. Wonderful place. Wonderful energy. Um, and so I highly, I highly uh, recommend it. So there's another aspect of, of camping that people may not know about. So the state park thing has a kind of problematic history, right? Like the creation of the state parks is you know, like, I mean, I'm glad, I guess they exist now in the face of like monocrop agriculture, 
but you know so that like not everything is given over to growing like corn and wheat but <laughs> um but the way yeah. they created was really to displace indigenous people um from the land and from you know their uh ancestral and traditional ways of living I want to pause here and add a few footnotes to some of the things we've been talking about. Up till now, you've heard Allison make reference to what she calls rustic camping versus more mainstream camping. The difference here is between camping at state parks versus camping at big chains like KOA. This is an important distinction because in my experience, the more rustic the campsite or campground, the less likely one is to encounter problematic situations. For example, the folks who were from Florida that Allison mentioned and the drunken campers that I mentioned are not typically up for a six-mile hike to get to their campsite or even to a campsite where you have to walk your gear to where you'll be sleeping instead of where you can just drive up and unpack. I could speculate on why this is the case, but suffice it to say that in my experience, the more rustic the campsite, the fewer folks you see who are likely to be these types of campers. In other words, the deeper you get into the woods, the safer you will be from the problems which characterize human society. It's also important for me at this point to complicate some of the notions I've presented here, as well as some of the terminology I use. I often use the terms nature, pastoral, wilderness, wild places, etc. interchangeably. I would like for my listeners to know that I am deeply aware of the contested ground that exists around these terms. The idea of wilderness in a Western context is a fraught colonial concept which arises out of a false dichotomy between man and nature, which characterized Enlightenment thinking. As I argue in my book, the Earth was the Europeans' first other. Nature was the Europeans' first dead thing to be used without recourse or consequence as he saw fit. In an article titled, How the Enlightenment Separated Humanity from Nature, Alexander Blum explains, quote, Beginning with early scientific thinkers like Francis Bacon and René Descartes, the study of observable nature was divorced from the study of human beings, and ever since, our relationship to the natural world has been fraught with utopian error. End quote. This error, he goes on to argue, is founded in Cartesian dualism. If human beings were outside of nature, separate from it, and if it could only be seen as inanimate in relation to the animation that characterizes humans, it stood to reason that man could do whatever he wanted to nature. Francis Bacon went so far as to define nature as a slave or a servant who needed to be broken on the rack. The view of nature as a recalcitrant resource that must be beaten into submission and made subordinate to man bears nascent relation to the place that the African comes to occupy in the imagination of the Enlightenment European. Hence, European notions about nature set the stage for the violations of the Middle Passage and chattel slavery in the Americas, as well as ushers in the Europeans' complete misunderstanding of the indigenous person's relationship to the land. 
It makes sense then that one of the earliest ways Europeans characterized Africans and Native Americans was as primitives, as those as of yet uncoupled from nature. For the Enlightenment European, anyone who lived in harmony with nature, or who did not live as they did, was always already a thing, the same kind of thing that nature was seen to be. As the rupture from nature in European thinking is the primal ground upon which subsequent blood is shed. In other words, philosophical notions about nature provide scaffolding for a range of other areas of human slash other interaction and activity, and the otherizing of nature enacted by Enlightenment thinkers enables the anti-blackness of Western society. Some people are inclined to see the rise of transcendentalism as a departure from this Enlightenment view of nature. But as I show in my book, transcendentalists maintain the object status of nature, though they defined it as a good object instead of a bad one. In both cases, however, the objectification of nature, whether it is a thing one loves or a thing one seeks to subdue, has similar consequences for the people who Western thinkers also define as objects. That is why I suggest some of the most famous environmentalists, like John Muir, were also some of the most virulent racists. Thus, in my work, I seek a different genealogy of the outdoor world, turning my historical lens to Harriet Tubman and the Maroons whose knowledge and comfort with the natural world was indelibly linked to their freedom. Indeed, rather than emphasizing love of nature as an object, my work and, I believe, the lives and the work of other black environmentalists demonstrate a sense of connection, a sense of interbeing with nature. Going and listening to the lake, just the sound of the lake, even if you can't hardly sleep because it's so loud, <laughs> yeah. there's a calming that happens. And also to view nature, we saw a beautiful blue bird mm -hmm. um, and a chipmunk was giving it the blues or whatever, <laughs> but for us to see it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because it was so beautiful. Um, every time we go to the dark sky park, that means we leave our campground for five minutes. But we learn this time, if you just look up, there are all the stars. So we don't even have to go. <laughs> so right. that was a realization like, oh my goodness. But when we do go, we always see maybe a fox or a deer or something on our way back. Um, so... It's not just um, being away from the noise, but it's also being a part of, of a natural environment and the joys that come with that. Allison's language of being a part gets to the idea of interbeing which I argue in my work characterizes black engagement with nature. This notion of interbeing emphasizes the mutual aliveness of ourselves and nature in a way that this language scarcely allows. Even in attempting to share this with you, I am forced into naming ourselves and the whole of existence referred to here as nature, as two things 
when in fact there are no two things. There is only the one thing, being itself, and all the various fruits of this big, amazing tree of life. The earth is that tree, and we are the fruits of that tree. There is no separation there. And when we go into nature, we can grasp our enmeshment, our oneness with all that is. Which is that we're the fruit of this ancient tree, this earth. We came out of this earth. And so um, we're not really separate from it. Even if we want to travel into space, we have to take, we have to recreate the physical and quantum realities of earth within, mm -hmm. within a canned vessel that we call a ship and take it out into space. That's how deeply connected and integral to this place we are. Yeah. Um, and so I think going into nature makes that, you know, you can, you, you sense that and you can feel that. And there's a, and there's a kind of um, calmness that results, as you said, and a, and a kind of centering and grounding in that. For millions of years, humans lived what is basically camping, mm -hmm. right? Like this was just people slept outside and people were yeah. in and they like, when it got too cold to sleep outside, they left and they went, they followed the sun, you know, to where it was warm to sleep outside. Well, Detroiters used to sleep on our island park, Belle Isle, when it was too hot to sleep inside their homes. Oh, wow. They would go out to the island park and sleep. It's, it's like sleeping outside with the sound of the crickets and the birds and the natural rhythm of a day. Like you learn so much about your, yourself as a human when you sleep mm -hmm. outside, right? Because once the sun goes down, it's like, well, that's a wrap. And then, you know, at six o'clock or 5.30 or whatever time, the birds are like. Yeah. <laughs> and the days are so long. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's time to get up. And so, and so your body gets into this really wonderful kind of rhythm um, as well. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's like we became who we are sleeping outside. Mm -hmm. And as humans, it's like we can remember who we are probably by sleeping outside. What would we discover if we surrendered fully to the experience of this quantum entanglement with nature? What vistas and valleys wait to be found within ourselves and in our experience when we step away from curated reality and into the irreducible infinite that is the natural world? Perhaps, like Maladoma Somme, we will find that the perception of the gap between the world and ourselves that Richard Wright describes in his poem, and which I mentioned in the first episode, can be closed through an embrace of an intimacy with nature. Somme writes in his book of water and the spirit about his journey back home through the forest when he escapes the seminary, the oppressive French seminary. He writes, I was uncertain about whether I was going the right way, yet I didn't have any better ideas. In front of me, I noticed a tree loaded with fruits that looked like oranges. 
The sight of a fruit tree alleviated my panic somewhat, however reminded me that I was, after all, in the bush where natural food was plentiful. Almost one tree out of ten carried some fruits. I began to feel like it was perfectly natural to be out there in the middle of nowhere trying to go somewhere. Is this the first sweet taste of freedom? I thought back to the seminary, now lost in the jungle far behind me, end quote. I paraphrased a bit there, but what's important about this quote is the line, is this the first sweet taste of freedom? The image of those orange-like fruits on the tree, which are plentiful in the forest all around, begin to imply something about freedom quite distinct from what he had experienced in the seminary. I want to hold these images together in our mind of sleeping outside, of freedom, of the maroon, of Harriet Tubman, of Somme, of a sojourn out of the places of bondage and into the place of freedom, because freedom itself is natural, and it is our birthright, all of us. Before I offer my Black to Nature camp book review for this episode, I want to let my listeners know about a website called blackandcamping.com, which serves the same purpose as the Black to Nature camp book. There, you'll find a list of Black-owned campgrounds, as well as reviews on camping gear and tips for campers, with information on everything from how to make a fire to how to make sure that the water you drink is safe for consumption. So if you're ready to hit the trail and pitch a tent, be sure to check them out. I'd like to add that these campgrounds are not just for black folks, but for folks of any identification who are interested in diversity and good vibes. So for this episode's Black to Nature Camp Book Review, I'm going to review one of the parks Allison and I mentioned where we have both camped, Mont Treblanc State Park in Quebec, Canada. This is a huge state park just a few hours north of the U.S. border at Niagara Falls. When we camped there, we camped by a lake and it was strikingly beautiful and peaceful. There are some outhouses at this rather remote campsite. It took 45 minutes driving from our campsite to get to the main office on that side of the park, but there were no showers at our campsite. So folks camping here should be prepared to bring all of your food, and all of your water, as there are no facilities nearby to buy these things. There are bears in the park, so control of trash and food is important so as not to attract them to camp. However, our whole week camping there, we never saw or even heard a bear. But because of the bears, a park employee or ranger will make the rounds nightly to collect trash and do welfare checks. All the rangers and employees we met were friendly and welcoming. We experienced absolutely nothing problematic from any of the other campers, many of whom were international travelers. There is also the little town of Mont Treblanc, which is a great place to visit on your way into the park or on your way out. It's a famous skiing town and it looks like a picturesque alpine village. 
Vibes were cool in the town too. Overall, I'm going to give the Montreblanc State Park a five out of five Black to Nature Camp Book rating for having been a safe, beautiful, and fun place to camp. Yeah. And I, I do think that um, that camping in nature, I mean, my experience anyway, is that in nature, I just feel like people are much less likely. People who go out to camp, who go out to backpack, who go out to hike are just like way less likely to, you know, in, not that they won't have problematic views that I could argue with them about. They're just mm -hmm. much less likely to be engaging in anything that's going to be against me. Yeah, yeah. Because this if you're true. out camping, I mean, what do people, you know, they're, they're, people can't make assumptions about like what you're doing there or whatever. They know why you're there. You're there yeah. for this really beautiful, like innocent reason, which is that you want to be in nature. And you have to focus on your survival most of the time. Yes. So your mind is not going to go to, you know, different things. Right. Because you're like, where am I going to get my food? Did that bug just bite me or whatever it is? That is it. <laughs> <laughs> You have no time to, you know, worry about things you know, that are petty, 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 petty things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A bear. What if there's a bear? Exactly. Yeah. We will all have to band together if the yeah. bear is in the camp. <laughs> yes. Before I close out this episode, I want to tell you about a book that Allison sent me. It's called The Camping Trip by Jennifer K. Mann. It's a children's book whose illustrations feature black children, and it's a great primer for kids about camping. So if you're thinking of taking the family camping for the first time, this book is a great way to introduce younger kids to what camping is all about. If you happen to be in the Detroit area, stop by the Source Booksellers and pick up a copy. It's one of our country's black-owned bookstores, and it's a fabulous place to get any books that you have on your list. While you're there, Tell Allison or her mom, Janet, we said hello. I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast, and I hope you'll tune in next time when I talk to my guest, Michelle Pichon, about Forgotten Louisiana. If you want to get your Black to Nature information fixed between now and then, follow me on Instagram at black underscore the number two underscore nature, or check out the Facebook page for the podcast. It's called Black and Country. Likewise, stay tuned to these social media accounts for a pre-order link for my book, Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture, which is forthcoming from the University Press of Mississippi in spring 2021. All the music used in this episode is from the YouTube license-free audio library. I'd like to thank my guest, Allison Jones, for generously sharing this time with me. I hope you'll tune in next time, and maybe I'll see one of you out on the trail somewhere. Until then, keep on blooming. <laughs>